0: few months now in the book of Hosea and this evening we are considering uh, the last two verses verses 8 and 9 of Hosea chapter 14 but for the purpose of commemoration I'll read the entire chapter. Hosea chapter 14 verses 1 through 9 this is God's word let's give attention to it now. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. And you... The orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. And His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come now asking that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We are your people. And we confess now our desperate need for the work of your spirit in our hearts. Lord, this word is able to make fools wise. Which means that it applies to every single person in this room. Help us to grow wise in your ways, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are uh, a lot of things to marvel at as we finish out this uh, prophecy of Hosea. As we think about the wickedness of Israel, um, I was talking actually to my my mother-in-law briefly this afternoon. Um, mostly because I think she needs to hear the message of Hosea. I'm only kidding. Um, uh, At her church, First Baptist Church in Prattville, they've been uh, in Sunday school going through the book of Amos. And so we were talking about some of the prophets. And it's just, guys, it's a marvel to me to read the mercy of God in these words and just to see how strong how starkly it stands out in light of Israel's situation. In 733 uh, B.C., King Shalmaneser of Assyria invaded Israel, took Samaria, the capital, captive, and he took all of the people captive into Assyria, led them away. He was angered by them because they, even though they were essentially a vassal state to Assyria, which meant they were to pay tribute, uh, King Shamaneser found out that they'd sort of gone behind his back and tried to play things from both end by, ends by establishing a treaty with Egypt. They're thinking if Assyria gets too strong, well, we'll, we'll call on our friends from Egypt and we'll just pit them against one another. Well, what God did is he showed the Israelites that they were too smart for their own good. He caused their plans to be discovered. And in his anger, Shalmaneser took them captive. He said, well, you just won't have a people anymore. You won't have a country anymore. And so in something of a trail of tears, they were carried away from their homeland. What's interesting about this is that Israel never returned. This was it. They never returned to the land in any notable way. Now, you, if you say, well, what about Ezra? What about Nehemiah? Well, those were the, um, that was Judah. That was the southern kingdom. They came back, albeit in fewer people than would have equaled even one tribe. It's about 40,000 people who ever came back. And, and so even as we read Esther, uh, you, you find out that uh, Mordecai, he's still, things are good in Susa, I'm not going back. And so Hosea's prophecy then represents a sort of finality in the story. This is the end. It's not the end of the people. It's not the end of the promise. But it is the end of a certain dispensation in God's providence. What remained was Judah and Benjamin forming the southern kingdom, but even their future would only last another 150 years until Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar would carry them away. So as we come here, we are reading these final words. They should read something like an epitaph. Here lies Israel. Behold, they once were glorious, but now the name on the tomb should read Ichabod. The glory has departed. Remember the name of Eli's grandson. But instead of an epitaph, God gives them another scroll. He wants them to take with them words Israel, when you go away, I want you to take words with you. I want you to hide my word in your heart because my word is the roadmap to return. And so he gives them this glorious promise in verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. This this glorious thing that I'm going to do. You're going away for now. You're not going to return to the land, but you will return to me. And that bridges us into the work that God is doing today. We looked at Romans chapter 11 last week, and we noticed that, that the reason you and I... I think we're all Gentiles in here, no ethnic Jews. The reason that the gospel has come to us in the way that it has is because of this. Through your salvation, it is God's will to provoke Israel to jealousy. And so that even now, the work of the Lord amongst ethnic Israelites is going on so that He's drawing them to Himself. Remember, the hardening of Israel is only partial according to Romans 11. So that in the end, all Israel will be saved. Well, here, instead of this epitaph, again, we have a final reflection. We would, it looks kind of like uh, maybe a declaration by the Lord, and certainly part of it is in verse 8 and then in pr- verse 9, a proverb To finish everything out, as you know, whoever is wise, let him understand these things from from Hosea. Let's begin, though, with what we'll call Ephraim's confession. Now, remember. So the first thing we see here in verse eight is Ephraim's confession. I'm reading from the ESV, and it says, "O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols?" But in study, one of the things that you'll find out is that uh, if you go back into some older translations of the Hebrew here, many people, many other translations will have, would uh, oh, simply have, Ephraim, Ephraim will say, "What shall I have to do with idols?" And so the understanding here, both from, from some older commentaries, but also from the Jewish tradition is this. This is not a declaration by the Lord where it's, O oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? Instead, the understanding here is this is the result of God's work. The result of God's work is that Ephraim will confess his sin and repent. And he will say, what have I to do with with idols. And so the result of God's gracious work is Ephraim's repentance. He's going to say in response to God's goodness toward him, you've turned me away from my apostasy. Um, You've poured out your love upon me. You've turned your anger away, pouring it out on the Lord Jesus Christ. What have I to do with idols? Matthew Henry notes that God <coughs> will put it into his heart to say this. This is an aspect of the sovereign work of God, that, that perceiving God's work among them, Ephraim would then turn to the Lord and say, why did I ever do this? Why could I be, how could I be so foolish as to worship the work of my own hands? And so the second thing we see then is God's response. Notice again in verse 8. It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. As we think about this, one of the things I, I, I hope that you will take away from all of this reflection on God's work. He he has declared His anger against Israel in very specific terms. And I think in ways that have been intended to make us a little bit uncomfortable. But the God that we serve, the God who created the universe, delights to show you His mercy. When you come to Him professing your faith, and confessing your sins to Him, He rejoices to receive you to Himself. And He utters this promise to Ephraim. Ephraim, over and over again, uh, about whom He has declared, You are my unfaithful bride. Notice what He says. It is I who answer and look after you. What does He say to them? I, I will answer you when you call upon Me, Ephraim. When you detest your idols and you look to Me, I will answer you. Yes, even then. Rather than ignore him, God will answer him. Not only will He answer, but He says, look, I, am, I, I will look after you. And, and in the Hebrew, the idea is of looking after is imagine uh, you and I looking down at uh, an ant mound, an anthill. You bend over, you get your magnifying glass out, you stoop down and you look at it. You you perceive it, you inspect it. That's what the idea is. It is uh, uh, to look from a bent position. Sometimes it means to lurk or to receive. It is to watch with readiness No longer will God be the chastiser of Israel, but He will watch over them. He will protect them. And He will bless them. Notice what He says. I am like an evergreen cypress. I think surely here, don't you think there's a little bit of irony? Why would this be ironic? Or maybe a little bit of a a paradox? Well, because Israel has built idols from wood. They have cut down trees and imported trees from Lebanon and they carve them into idols and they put them on their shelves and they pray to them. Well, here God says, I am like an evergreen cypress. And and you immediately understand the importance of that. God is evergreen, isn't he? His, the life never runs out of him. His leaves never die. He doesn't go through seasons. He never changes. He is the same today and yesterday and forever. And so, uh, Israel, as you return to me, perceive that I am this same God. You remember as we looked at Hebrews chapter 13 last week, we, we reflected on that uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus is the same to yesterday and today and forever. And that is part of the substance of our faith and our hope. He is an evergreen cypress, one in whom life abides and abounds and that flows to us. He says, from me comes your fruit. Now, immediately, your, your thought goes to John fifteen five. I am the vine... And you are the branches that y'all reflected on Wednesday night, I think, as well. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And what God is saying to Israel from me comes your fruit. Well, what fruit? The fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith, the fruit of good deeds, the fruit of obedience. All of that comes from me. The evergreen cypress, the one who never changes. And what does this mean? That when he redeems you, that can never be taken away from you. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and God draws you to himself, what happens is that you are in union with Jesus Christ. Now, uh, surely part of that we can't fully explain. What does it mean in Ephesians chapter 1 when it says that you right now are seated with Him in the heavenly places? How can I be sitting in this pew and yet with Jesus at the same time? Well, you are. Because the Spirit of the living God has joined you inseparably from Christ. And if you imagine it, your faith connects you with Jesus Christ in a living and a vital way so that His life now lives in you. It compels you to the glory of God. And at the end of this, what do we recognize? That we can do no good on our own. There there is nothing in my life that I can say, look what Brian has done. If, If we held a revival and thousands of people came forward and professed their faith in Christ, we would never boast. Because all of that redounds to the glory of God. The evergreen cypress. The one whose leaves never fall off. Whose leaves never grow grow brown he is ever living he is the source of our life and our blessedness and so he is to be the the center of of our solar system we revolve around him and we are basking in his light and his love and his life flows in the believer all of our spiritual life comes from christ Our repentance, our looking to Christ for salvation, our profession of faith, our good deeds all come from Him. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Thirdly, lastly, we notice this proverb from Hosea. Now this just rounds everything out. Hosea's got the last word. The Lord uh, inspires him to write it. Whoever is wise, in verse 9... Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Hosea ends with something of a reflection. What will the wise man do with Hosea's prophecy? Well, he'll read it. He's going to read it, and he's going to reflect. He's going to take these words in. They're going to be something like uh, the Word of God where we take them in and we eat them. And they nourish us. And we're going to grow wise in the ways of the Lord. We will never ever bring any sort of charge against God to say, why did you do this? Are you unjust? What Hosea teaches us is that the wise man pursues knowledge. Now, Surely all men believe they are wise. I would doubt you've ever met a man who said, yeah, I'm I'm basically an idiot. Nobody ever asked me for advice. Don't ask me for advice. I don't know anything. If I give you any advice, just ignore it. Don't do what I say. If I tell you to do something, do the opposite. Every man believes he's wise. And the more ignorant a man is, the wiser he thinks he he is in his own eyes. No unbelieving man thinks he is a fool. Instead, he believes he possesses the height of intellect. If you survey the universities, and I, I would challenge you to survey the universities, see if you can find a professor of evolutionary biology who says, I'm a fool. I don't know anything. No, instead you find these men full of pride. I'm standing in my yard just the other day with my neighbor and he was marveling that a vine could grow out of the ground and as though it has eyes reach up into the heavens and wrap itself around a limb. And he can observe that and deny the existence of God. But he's the wisest man you've ever met. But don't be deceived. Believers can be arrogant too, can't they? How many times does Paul chastise the believers in 1 Corinthians for boasting? The truly wise man humbles himself to learn the ways of the Lord. He doesn't assume that God thinks like him. We can be guilty of this. Well, how do you know if you're doing the right thing? Well, I'm surely God would do it this way, wouldn't He? But this is another irony. Think about this for just a second. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. The word wise uh, can also be translated as skillful. And it's also used in places like Isaiah 40, verse 20, and Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 9, to describe the men who skillfully built idols. What the Lord is saying then is, If you're truly wise, you're not going to build idols for yourself. You will humble yourself and look to my ways. Wise men do not build idols. They worship the Lord. And the last thing that he notes for us is that the ways of the Lord will always lead us to prosperity. Prosperity. Not prosperity in the worldly sense, but the the idea of of well-being. Following in God's ways will never lead you into some sort of damnable harm. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Can't you just hear the question? Lord, if you are able to heal Israel's apostasy and you can do that by the sovereign work of your Holy Spirit, why have we gone through this whole book? Why this whole dog and pony show? Why this dance? Why let them go through this? Why not just heal their apostasy? Why make two lines? Why is there Jacob and Esau? Why? Why, why, why? We put ourselves in the shoes of Job, don't we? Why are these things happening? And Hosea concludes with this. Whatever you conclude, in all of your questions, this is what you conclude. The ways of the Lord are right. When I don't understand them, they are right. When they seem mysterious to me, they are right. God is the God of infinite, eternal, and unchanging wisdom who is directing the course of human affairs to the glory of His own name. And He does that according to His wisdom, not yours or mine. And what we can conclude again by looking at the life of Israel is this. The upright walk in the ways of God. Transgressors stumble in His ways. Isn't Israel accountable for their sin? Aren't they the ones who chose not to walk in the ways of the Lord? This is in opposition to every other way that seems wise to us. I think many parents, for instance, spend more time preparing their children for college than for marriage and parenting. And we think that this is wisdom. But we can only have confidence in our ways when we pursue the ways of God. And that is what Israel refused to do. The upright find God's ways to be walkable, but transgressors trip over them. And notice just how this chapter is bookended. Go back with me to verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And the last words, transgressors, same Hebrew word, stumble in the ways of God. We are reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, about the word of the cross. You know, the work of the church in, in many ways is pretty simple. W- what are we to do? We are to proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not magical, it's pretty ordinary. Sunday after Sunday, what's the, word, what's the work of the preacher? Well, to declare the message of the cross to go out into the community, declare the message of the cross. There's no flash, no panache. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is this, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The upright walk in the ways of the Lord. It is wisdom to them, but transgressors... Stumble in them. It is God who upholds his people as they seek to honor him by their lives. Again, as we finish Hosea, I hope that you'll marvel at this last chapter. I hope that you'll marvel at the display of God's infinite goodness, marvel at the work of his sovereignty. That he would save any at all is a wonder. That we don't all perish in everlasting condemnation is a wonder. That God offers hope to his people is a precious reminder of his goodness. What's the message of Hosea then in the end? Despite all my wickedness, God is good. And he does good. And as we think of his hand of discipline and the afflictions that he prepares for our lives, we see behind them always his smiling providence and his wisdom. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you, but not as we should. And so even as we think of our love for you, we have to confess our sin. Lord, we ask that you would increase our love, especially as we reflect on words like this. Uh, Surely you are calling us to do that. The wise man understands these things. He seeks to understand. He pursues it. He he takes his staff and he beats upon the rock until it yields water to him. Lord, let us be like those people. Grow us in our wisdom. Not in the wisdom of the world. Help us to walk in your ways and be faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name.